on-demand coverage. This is the PFT PM Podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Monday edition, PFT PM. I know we only did one last week. I've decided based upon the input that we received, and most of it was positive. There wasn't an avalanche of input, but people seem to like this. So at least for now, I'm going to keep trying to do it. Some days it's easier than others. Today was easier than most, especially because we have a good topic to sink our teeth into. The notion that Tom Brady has had enough of Bill Belichick, and it's Belichick's 66th birthday, and there's been a lot of Belichick talk today. We had a fun PFT Live draft to start the day. Chris Sims and I went round for round with coaches that we would take for one game against Bill Belichick. I'll pose that question to Tom Curran of NBC Sports Boston coming up. Extended discussion with him about his take on Tom Brady at maybe a breaking point, who knows, where he's had enough of grumpy old man Bill Belichick, who is now, as mentioned, 66 years old and maybe coaching for another 15, 20 years. Who knows? Robert Kraft said at the league meetings last year he'd like him to coach into his 80s. For now, he's 66, still going strong. How strong is the relationship between him and Brady? That 27-minute discussion is coming up. That's all I'm going to say about the topic for now. I do have a suggested name for this controversy that I ran by Tom Curran. He laughed, but I think he was laughing politely. Please analyze his laugh. I think he was being sarcastic. He didn't like my idea. The Vikings had an idea as to which of their players who are due for second contracts would get the deal done first. Linebacker Eric Kendricks, five years, $50 million. After they've given $84 million over three to quarterback Kirk Cousins, the Vikings now have some other business that they have to decide how they're going to take care of it, whether they're going to take care of it. Three players entering the final year of their rookie deal. Stephon Diggs, he was not a first-round draft pick. He is in the fourth year of a deal that pays him $1.907 million this year. Daniel Hunter, same deal, $1.907 million this year, fourth year of his rookie deal. Are they going to sign either of those guys to long-term contracts? Are they going to let it play out? Have they tried to negotiate, but they've gotten nowhere? Diggs could be looking at a ton of money, especially after Jarvis Landry got $15 million a year from the Browns. Diggs could say, at a minimum, I want $15 million a year, and they've paid Adam Thielen already. Diggs could be tough to do. And then you've got Anthony Barr entering the fifth year of his rookie deal. He's due to make $12.3 million under the fifth-year option. What will they do with his contract moving forward and some are already saying by paying Eric Kendricks they've essentially picked between him and Anthony Barr we'll see if they can figure this out they also have the Trey Waynes option coming due before May 3rd that would put him under contract through 2019 but that was one of the reasons articulated by coach Mike Zimmer for not overspending on a quarterback now I think he tries to say after the fact he was just posturing and wanted to throw people off the trail, wanted to make it look like they weren't going to spend big money on Kirk Cousins. But the bottom line is, the more money you spend on a quarterback, the less money is available for some of these other core players. And now the Vikings may have to watch Diggs, Barr, Hunter, and or Waynes eventually walk away. Des Bryant still looking for a new door he can walk through after being cut by the Cowboys on Friday. This is a truncated five-down territory, by the way. If my count is good, and it rarely is. I'm up to three now. There's a report the Browns don't want Des Bryant. Isn't it weird that the Browns would be in a position to not want anybody? There's just something odd about the idea that the team that no one should want wants no one, wants no part of Des. 
And they really don't need Dez. They've got Josh Gordon under contract for this year. They have Jarvis Landry signed. They've got Corey Coleman, if he can ever fulfill his full potential. I don't know what Dez is going to want by way of money, but I think, as I said over the weekend, Dez Bryant's number one factor should be a quarterback who will confidently throw the ball, accurately throw the ball when Dez seems to be covered, and I don't know that Tyrod Taylor is the answer or whoever the the Browns take with the first overall pick. So I don't know how newsy it is that the Browns don't want Dez. I don't know why Dez would want the Browns. And the question ultimately becomes, who does Dez want? Will he want a team that wants him? Will the teams that want him not be teams Des wants? And I think for now, it makes sense to just see what happens in the draft because there's got to be a team or two out there that is thinking it can get this guy or that guy early in the draft. And if it doesn't get the guy it's targeting, maybe Des becomes attractive. So I think the best move, wait until the dust settles on the draft. The last thing you want to do is go sign with a team that ends up drafting a receiver in the first round and you've necessarily been limited in your relevance to the team on your way through the door. Austin Davis staying in Seattle, or is it Davis-Austin? Here's the the lingering confusion I have about the news today that Davis-Austin, Austin Davis is sticking around for another year after the Seahawks just signed Stephen Morris. And I know they need camp arms for the offseason program and training camp. The idea that they are still considering Colin Kaepernick is a little bit bizarre to me. And I want to get the exact quote. And and this is setting aside any and all issues, questions about the national anthem, about his collusion case, about anything that we already know. The idea, and here it is. I want to get this exact quote from Mike Garofolo. I'm told this won't end, this being the re-signing of Austin Davis, this won't end the team's talks with Colin Kaepernick, still in a holding pattern but not done. All right. On Thursday, the shit hit the fan over why Colin Kaepernick's workout with the Seahawks was canceled or postponed, whatever whatever the proper word. He was set to work out last Monday. From Kaepernick's perspective, it was because there was a late request from the team to commit to not kneel during the national anthem. From the team's perspective, it was part of a broader conversation regarding his plans going forward, including his lawsuit. And my... Basic reaction to that is, why does anybody even care about anything other than football? But I think that ship has sailed. We know that these are factors, right or wrong, that the teams are taking into account. But why would the Seahawks want to bring in a guy who is basically lying about them now, right? If this is all coming from his camp, that, no, it's not about a broader plan. It's not something that merely is delayed. This is something where there was a litmus test and he failed it because he declined to say he would stand for the anthem. I I just can't help but wonder why the Seahawks would have any interest. And, you know, a point that I made last week, and this arises from my experience practicing law, dealing with the strategy when you're talking about an employee who has some sort of a legal claim against the employer, whether it's a former employee, a current employee, or a prospective employee. If there's a pending legal claim, every move the employer makes is strategic, and every move the employer makes comes from the Office of the General Counsel. And I feel like the fact that the Seahawks, through the media company they own and operate, sending out smoke signals to suggest that the door has not been slammed shut on Kaepernick, I feel like that's a strategic move aimed at supporting the idea that Colin Kaepernick has failed to mitigate his potential damages by not reasonably pursuing employment, blah, blah, blah. I don't think the Seahawks really want him. 
But if they are betting on him not wanting them, because there is that sense out there that Kaepernick really doesn't want to play, if they're betting that he doesn't want to take a job, then, hey, the offer's open. Anytime you want to come, open invitation, day or night, show up. It's easy to stand behind that when you're guessing that the guy's not going to take you up on it. That's just a weird twist that came up today that I wanted to have a little time to let that breathe. One last thing before we play the Tom Curran interview. This Jameis Winston situation, I don't know why they haven't talked to him yet about the allegations made by the Uber driver involving a situation that allegedly happened March of 2016. The Uber driver, by all appearances, coming forward not to get paid, but because she was inspired by the Me Too movement last fall. And I think that people connected to Winston and the Buccaneers give credence to the idea that this isn't a money grab. You know, so many times when something like this happens, hey, it's a money grab, it's a money grab. No, this is somebody who feels compelled to come forward because she believes she experienced something that is similar to what others have experienced and others have come forward to tell their story. Regardless, why isn't the league office having Jameis Winston tell his story? Where does this stand? And if I'm a Cowboys fan, I'm watching this one closely because last year... Ezekiel Elliott, who was never arrested, never charged, right? He ended up being suspended six games. They aggressively investigated. They met with him. They interviewed the alleged victim six times, and this dominated. Now, it took a while. There were similar signs of delay. I don't know whether the NFL is just going to rush to get this done after the draft, do it in May and June, issue some sort of of a finding, but whatever happens with Winston, People are paying attention because there's just this sense that the NFL's in-house justice system is far from perfect. It's there mainly to support the broader PR objectives. It's really not a classic justice system. There aren't timelines. There's no speedy trial. There's no sense of consistency and normalcy and usual common practices. I feel like they do whatever they want to do to support whatever their agenda is. And if they don't meet with somebody, if they don't push something forward, then it's not their agenda to push it forward. And if they push it forward, then they've decided that fits their agenda. It's all driven by PR, and it's an odd situation. And if I was a Cowboys fan, I'd be wondering what in the hell is going on here. If I'm a Buccaneers fan, I I want to have this cloud eradicated one way or the other. If I'm the Buccaneers, I want to know what's going on. By May 3rd, they have to pick up his fifth-year option. Surely they will. It's going to be $20 million or more. At some point, they want to sign him to a long-term contract. Maybe they don't, based upon how this all shakes out. Either way, it shouldn't be that hard to interview the witnesses, gather the evidence, and figure things out. You know, memories fade. The sooner everyone has their story locked in, the better. So the allegation came up in November. And I guess you could say, well, it's already a year and a half old. How much more stale is it going to get? But still, it's not going to get any fresher. The NFL needs to have a mechanism in place to move quickly when these things hit their radar screen. This sense of confusion, ambiguity, haphazard procedures where they're aggressive in one case, they're not aggressive in the other case. I I, I just, it, it doesn't inspire confidence in the NFL's ability to properly administer this justice system, which really is a wing of its PR function. All right, enough of that. As promised, we're going to play the Tom Curran interview, and then on the backside, I'm going to answer some of your questions from today. Here's Tom Curran of NBC Sports Boston. 
All right, as promised, my good friend, I say that part sarcastically and part genuinely, Tom Curran, NBC Sports Boston, stirring it up today. Hey, I got a name for this thing. Hey, mm-hmm. Bear with me. Bear with me. Mm-hmm. The Boston TB12 Party. <laughs> You've done it again, Mike. You've <laughs> you done like it again. That? that was sarcastic. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, everything doesn't have to have an Appalachian. You know, you just because just you're from the Appalachians. You just, you just, some things just are. How did this become a thing? Um, which aspect, my friend? All of it. The notion, and just for those of you who haven't been listening to the podcast earlier, because I'll probably say something about this before. This is one of the realities, the awkward, clunky realities of taping an interview before you do the rest mm-hmm. of the podcast. But I probably will broach it at some point before. The idea that Tom Brady is leading some sort of a revolt against Bill Belichick, as articulated by you in an excellent column today. Where does this all come from, this idea that after a generation together, Tom Brady has a stick up his ass about Bill Belichick? I think it's the kind of thing that happens over the course of time. Um, You know, 2000 to 2008, 2009, this franchise was very different. You know, it was a nascent franchise, and the leaders at that time were, you know, Brewski and Vrabel and, you know, Anthony Pleasant, all these different guys. And and Brady was more of a a guy who wasn't necessarily along for the ride, but he was very much at – he was a learning player at that time. And he didn't really work hard on the business end of things and – you know, he did all the things that Belichick wanted, which have been really lines of demarcation between the Patriots and the rest of the league. We're going to be a one-voice place. We're going to be, you know, subjugate our own interests, and we're going to do things in a particular way um, that the rest of the league probably can't match, and we'll have great success because of it. And part of that was, over the course of time, Brady being subservient to that. And he was very good at that. Better than Peyton Manning, better than Dan Marino, better than John Elway, better than Brett Favre, you name it. Um, A very, very good soldier who never wanted to be a lieutenant and still doesn't. But over the course of time, you know, taking less money, seeing players who he valued very much, um, jettisoned or nickel and dimed or who went out the door, along with the team's success, I think started to wear on him, as did Belichick's very present inclination towards negativity. And as the 2010s have worn on, you know, I think Brady has become more and more spiritual, positive. His wife has exercised a lot of influence on him. So has Alex Guerrero, who he's very close with, in the importance of positivity and the importance of lifestyle and life choices. And a lot of those are a complete loggerheads with what Belichick needs to run the team. He goes to the whip. Belichick does. And Brady is not a go-to-the-whip kind of guy. Am I going on too long here? No, no, this is good. I'm, I'm wondering, though, if there was a moment where it snapped for Brady. Like, is there a specific thing we can point to? You know, I think it was the probably Campbell's the drafting and- of Jimmy Garoppolo. Really? I really think so. You know, when that happened and Bill Belichick on the night of the draft said, we all understand Tom's age and contract situation, that was ringing the alarm that Tom is on borrowed time. This is his successor. And what that did was it lit an immense fire under Brady, who was already, you know, obviously a 
tremendous player and said, you know what, F that. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen on my watch. What happened to Drew Bledsoe, because he fell asleep at the switch and had a family and went through a bunch of offensive coordinators and got a little bit lax about the job, that's not going to happen with me over my dead friggin' body. So he beat back the challenge, and he ratcheted up his intensity, and he adhered and bought into and strived even harder to be physically superior with all the training and the, you know, go to bed at 8 o'clock, don't drink anything, you know, except for water and, you know, assorted juices. And what has happened? He's absolutely been historic. 2014, that Super Bowl comeback against the Seahawks. 2016, the comeback against Atlanta. No player will ever match that. It's Muhammad Ali, it's Ruthie, and it's all that stuff. Shouldn't he have walked away at that moment, in hindsight? Wouldn't that have been the perfect time to walk away? Yeah, and that's a great question, Mike, because but he loves to play so much. He loves the chase, and he loves the competition, and he loves most of his teammates so much. I don't think that he is as – I think that the part of the reason that he, we are where we are right now is I think he feels the gap between him at 40 and his teammates – many of whom are between 23 and 26 or 22 and 26, is becoming huge. And it's hard for him to relate. And it's hard for them to relate. So I think that that's part of what's going on now. But it's always been just this incredible passion. He's, had. He's poured his life into it. And what happened this past year is after winning the fifth Super Bowl, he really made a conscious turn after that. Maybe it was his, his mother's mortality. Maybe it was the historic nature of the win. But it, as Gotham Chopra told me on a podcast, after years of rebuffing him, Brady finally said, you know, let's get some of this stuff down for history and posterity. And not only that, but they also became more out there with the TV 12 stuff, you know, pushing a book, pushing the regiment, pushing all that different stuff. All that stuff runs absolutely positively, diametrically counter to what Bill Belichick has been all about. And Brady didn't say to anybody, hey, can we do this? Do you don't mind doing this? I think he felt that after 17 years, he'd earned the right to do it on his own, his own way. And I think that the tacit blessings of Robert Kraft would allow him to feel that way. Well, when Gronkowski came back from injury, and he said, you know what, I've got to change the way I'm doing things. And he began subscribing to Guerrero's way of doing things. And he said, screw it to the heavyweights that he had grown up with. And he started to see the results. And then finally, <clears throat> when training camp started, and Belichick and Moses Cabrera, the strength coach, couldn't get Gronk to do a squat, and Gronk looked horrible, that's when the flashpoint really started. And I think that the stuff that has grown from that. Brady's trying to start a business, and all of a sudden, the person with whom he's trying to start the business is being somewhat mocked, definitely marginalized, certainly sent away so that he's not treating the rest of the players. But Belichick's not on unsteady ground here, and he didn't do things that were unfounded. He hasn't changed. Brady kind of has. Should he be allowed to? Maybe. Should he be allowed to play by different rules? Maybe. Should he have told the team that by the end of 2017, I might not be sure whether I'm going to play until 45 or not before they traded Jimmy Garoppolo? Maybe. So that's why everybody's got a leg to stand on. Belichick, Brady, Gronkowski, whoever. But what does Done. he want? What does he want? Let's assume 
that I this know. is all 100% I, accurate. And I'm not doubting any of it. Okay, I did yep. make the point when I wrote about it at PFT. There's not a lot of hard evidence. You speak authoritatively about Brady leading the pushback, about Brady launching an open revolt. I And I'm, I trust you on that. I'm curious mm-hmm. about the specifics, but I'm also curious about what does this guy want? Because Belichick isn't going to roll out of bed on a 66th birthday and say, I'm going to change like Tom Coughlin did back in 2007 when his job was on the line. Belichick's job ain't on the line. If Brady doesn't like it, get on down the highway and we'll keep this thing moving without you. I think that's what Belichick would say. I think that Belichick would have felt more comfortable saying that prior to October 30th or whatever it was when Garoppolo was traded. Um, the difficulty, and Belichick talked about it when he traded Garoppolo, and that's still, you know, why, why San Francisco and not an open auction? Why did Mike Shanahan's kid, who Belichick had a great relationship with, why does he want Garoppolo to succeed? Why only take a second-round pick? All of those things can be Tommy's explained team. to some degree. That's but, Tommy's team. He's sticking it to Tommy. Well, Isn't that the one he team also Brady wants him to succeed for? because it reflects well on him. It reflects well on Josh McDaniels. It reflects well on the organization. Look at this guy we unearthed. Look at what we passed up on to keep Tom here. But Belichick said it's a complex situation, and it is. You can't jettison Brady during a 2017 when he's heading towards another MVP award and taking the team to another Super Bowl. And then at the end of it, Mike, for Brady to throw for 505 in the Super Bowl, and for Belichick's decision, and that's why the Danny Amendola story with Mike Reese over the weekend was fascinating. For Belichick to make a decision that players feel cost them, despite all their blood, sweat, and tears, a championship, and still not have an explanation for it, has probably, in some ways, underscored that, is Brady right? I don't know, but it's actually underscored that he might have a point about the way things are done. And I agree with that. And as I read your article and I wrote up my characterization of it, it occurred to me, you lose two Super Bowls to the Giants, and it feels like those were just meant to go the Giants' way, that the hand of God was reaching down mm-hmm. and sticking the football to the helmet of David Tyree and threading the needle on that throw to Mario Manningham. And it just wasn't going to be the Patriots' day on those two Sundays, Super Bowl 42 and Super Bowl 46. This one felt different. This one felt like the Patriots committed an unforced error by not using Malcolm Butler. When you look across the field and there's a team there that isn't a bunch of robots, that doesn't have a crotchety coach who restricts their individuality but celebrates their individuality. And when when Nick Foles, and I don't know, maybe Tom Brady could do this now, but if Tom Brady was the backup in 2001 and he came over to the sidelines and he suggested a play on fourth and goal, what would Bill Belichick have said to him? I think he would have rolled his eyes and just kept doing whatever he was doing because it's not Tom Brady's role to suggest a play, at least especially not when he's the backup in 2001. So there's a looseness to the Eagles, and it worked. It's different if you're winning every championship, if you're the Patriots doing it the the Stepford Patriots way, where they're all brainwashed and they all act like they aren't human. But if you're not going to win the Super Bowl, then why are we doing this, especially when there's a team that acted the opposite of us? This is the Lane Johnson, pardon my take rant, that I'd rather win one and have fun than win five and be miserable. They won the most recent one having fun. I wouldn't the final result of that day as being – you know, smoking gun evidence that the Patriots' way doesn't work because had, you know, had he not been stripped, and then they win the thing, you know, whatever it was at the time, you know, 33, whatever the final would have been, 40 to 38. Um, 
that was fully within the, the realm. Way. But that the wouldn't have changed the, the landscape necessarily. Say it again? I say the Patriot way is not the only way. That's what we learned 10 weeks ago yesterday, that the it's, Patriot way is not the only way. It is the only way, way if you have the buy-in of the best player in the league. As long as you have that player buying in, then it's the best way to do it. But once, you know, look, the Patriot way is also the Greg Schiano way. But Greg Schiano couldn't get the buy-in. If he had gotten the buy-in over a period of time, I bet that team would have been damn good, too. Because he didn't win. That's the difference. That, that's yeah. the difference between Belichick and all of his lieutenants who have failed elsewhere. They didn't win early enough to, to be the way that they were with the media, with the players, with the front office. You can be an asshole if you win. But you better win quick, whether it's Josh McDaniels, Scott Pioli, most of those guys who tried to be like Belichick when they went elsewhere, you have a short fuse where you got to win or people are going to run you out of town. Right. And, and you know, to go 6-0, and as Josh did in, in Denver, well, if you piss off enough people on the way to 6-0, it, it's going to be hard for you to dig out when things go bad. And he pissed off people within the organization. You know, his best ally was Pat Bowen, and he was suffering from, you know, the early phases of dementia and wasn't remembering conversations. The next thing you knew, once Cutler was out the door and there was confusion as to what exactly was said by whom to whom, then you really had a friggin' problem. So, yes, but, but Brady has given the buy-in. And as a result, Devin McCourty has given the buy-in. And Look, we've had Richard Seymour pissed off and Ty Law pissed off and Adam Vinatieri, you know, raising a middle finger – on and on it goes, I can give you scads of examples. But in the end, the team conquers that bitterness because it, its most important players eventually say, look, I know he's an asshole. I know he's weird. I know he makes my life miserable here. But I really love winning championships, and I'm going to go win one. And they do that. Some guys at Darrell Rivas, like, get out of here. I'll do it one year, and then I'm going to get out of here fast. But... You what know, for do? Brady, I, I think part of it was... Great. Tom, go ahead. this all sounds great, but what the hell do they do? Well, that's great. I mean, what's next? And we don't panic yet. I mean, in the media or, or in the fan base or, or as observers, because phase one of off-season conditioning is stretching. Who cares? And phase two is not that much more dire. But what's the end game? That's, that's my question. If it's Gronk and he wants more money, well, that's fine. Just say it. But if you're Tom Brady, what's the end game? Do you want Bill to retire? Do you want Bill to say he's not going to yell anymore? And, I, and I'm a big you know, believer in Brady does have the right to do things a certain way, but I just wish that this non-confrontational person, and Brady is somewhat that way, would work above board with what this stuff is. But I think you he know? doesn't. I think that he believes I shouldn't have to. I was, I, you're I was, exactly right. Right? And, and last week when Robert Kraft tells Jeff Howe, that Tom Brady's contract isn't an issue and we're basically not going to do anything until either side declares it's an issue. He thinks, I believe, I shouldn't have to say it's an issue. It should be obvious when Blake Bortles is making $3 million more this year than I'm making that there's a problem. We're into the placeholder years for my last contract. This was all about spreading out salary cap. You never intended to pay me $15 million in 2018, but I shouldn't have to ask for more. It should be obvious that I should get more. Right. But, and, and on the flip side of that is, if he's not going to articulate that, and it is the way he's feeling, well, what are the Patriots supposed to think when he puts out Tom versus Time and his wife's talking about how difficult things are um, and he wants to just have fun and be in a, in a, in a positive atmosphere? 
and he's talking about how whether or not he's he, how conflicted he feels. And the filmmaker is saying that Tom is year to year. Why would the Patriots go to him right now and say, "Let's reduce your cap hit when we're not up against the cap"? In any way, well, no, there's no cap. It's not cap. that though. It's let's give you a big pile of money. It's not let's Why reduce your cap hit. Why would they give him a big hit? pile of money if he's going to quit? Because he's earned it. But he's going to quit. Why do it? Why well, you, big you, pay, you pay him for two years longer Listen, if he's Tom. ambivalent? And there's no bigger Brady, you know, backer than me. If I was a Patriots fan like you, here's what I'd be concerned about. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I would be concerned, right, that he's going to pull a Barry Sanders. I'm not saying he's going to. I'm not predicting it. And I think he would piss off a lot of Patriots fans if he did. But if this is all being set up one brick at a time to be Belichick's fault, what happens if in the middle of July, Tom Brady says, you know what, folks? Thanks for the memories. I don't want a farewell tour. I don't want one last year. I don't want this season to be all about me. This would have been my last season, but I don't think it's fair to the team, and I don't think it's fair to anyone else for the entire 2018 season to be all about me. So take that, Bill Belichick. Shove it sideways, Roger Goodell. I'm out. I'd worry about that if I was a Patriots fan. Uh, Until he's back, until he's playing, until he articulates that he's into it, that's on the table, Mike. Absolutely. People have asked me throughout this offseason, is there any chance? What do you put it at? And I've, I've always given at least a 5% chance that he doesn't play this year. But because see, think he about keeps this. the door open. But, but, but think about it. As, as there's more and more evidence that Brady has changed and he's had enough of the Patriot way, he's had enough of the curmudgeonly Bill Belichick, it does start to mount. This vibe starts to grow, and it began with the Seth Wickersham article that most people brushed off, including me. Now it's starting to gain some momentum. Your piece today, I think, is yet another brick in that wall, and at some point, if Brady would walk, I don't think he would be reviled by the fans. How could they, how could they be mad at a guy who's gotten to a point where he genuinely looks in the mirror and says, I can't do this anymore. I can't do why. this. I can't buy into this anymore. And my story predated Seth's initially by about a week that the people were starting to grab their coats and head for the door. I got that sense earlier than Seth's story. His was much more, I guess, his was sexier than mine, no doubt. But there were people telling me, look, it's changed around here. I don't know how much longer we're going to be keeping this together. There was an end of days feeling to it in November. But what people here in Boston and New England at large would have an issue with would be the bait and switch that Tom may be engaging in with, you know, I'm going to play until I'm 45, and then the next thing you know after Garoppolo's traded, yeah, you know, maybe I don't feel like 45 as much as I did. Maybe I'm just going to go year to year. So that irritates people, and and I think that when we talked, you asked me what was the, the flashpoint, what was the initial aspect of this. Would Brady be in some way exacting a level of revenge for the drafting of Garoppolo by yes. doing it this way? Yes. It's revenge I agree. on the, Hey, it's revenge on the Patriots. It's revenge on the league. Just think they're going to announce the schedule and there's going to be five Patriots primetime games at a minimum. The Patriots all of a sudden get a hell of a lot less sexy if Brian Hoyer is the starting quarterback and they're grooming whoever Bill Belichick has to take with the 23rd or the 31st overall pick. Yep. You know and and it's funny, you know <clears throat> When I read your headline to the rewrite, and I never have a problem, I always appreciate any time that you, you know, take a story. Um, 
and I did. I used the words open revolt. Just I want to try and articulate better why I chose those words. Um, and it's because it's linked to the battle lines drawn, in my estimation, between Belichick and the strength coaches and Alex Guerrero and Brady. And over the past week, we've seen Julian Edelman put up on Instagram um, Alex Guerrero working on his knee area and saying, you know, pliability means ability, da, 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 da. But that goes out to a million people. Meanwhile, we have Gronk with has throughout this last season been putting that ridiculous hashtag, you know, bands will make her dance or whatever. Who the hell knows what it is? Um, but he continues to stress how important the Guerrero aspect is. You know, with Jeff Darlington throwing out there today from ESPN, and Jeff is, you know, well acquainted with Chopra, and I think he's well acquainted with Alex, too, um, putting out there that, you know, he is going to be in a situation where um, Brady might not be involved in any of the off-season activities, or very few of them, so he spends time with his family and does stuff with Alex. All of this stuff leads back to this dominion that Brady and Alex have begun. So that's where I see a quote-unquote revolt. But once Brady starts saying, I'm not down with this anymore, it emboldens other players to say the same. So that's why I characterized it as that. And it makes sense. But, I mean, it's a jarring word, and I think that this has given some context to it. And I feel like that little blip that I had on the edge of the radar screen, the things Patriots fans worry about at night, right? I think I'm moving that a little bit closer to the middle. I think mm-hmm. it, I think that it's beeping a little more brightly and it's moving a little more closely to the heart of the Patriots' worry radar screen because I'm starting to think there's a chance that Brady realizes at some point between now and July, this just isn't sustainable, and if this is going to be my last year, I don't want it to be my last year. I don't want that last year treatment. I don't want the Derek Jeter praise. That's not what I'm comfortable with. It's not going to end well. Let's just call it and let's just move on. I, 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 I still think it's it's a long shot relative to other outcomes, but that's the only way that I see this thing resolving in a way that gives him what's he, what he wants. What he wants, I think, is to be free from Belichick if all yep. this stuff is accurate. And they're never going to trade him. And I don't think that necessarily he wants to be traded. Does he want to outlast Bill? Is that part of the reason Josh McDaniels is here? You know, does he want to outlast Bill? And he sees, but I don't know necessarily that Josh is, you know, a picnic compared to Belichick. And what's he going to do? He's going to go to Robert Kraft at some point between now and start a training camp and say, hey, basically it's him or Belichick, or it's it's one of us, one of us stays and one of us goes? No, I I can't imagine him doing that. I think the likelihood is they find some kind of uneasy truce. I mean, when you look at Belichick, here's what's interesting, Mike, is think about it. Since the owners' meetings, when he met, you know, kind of impromptu with the New England media uh, on Sunday afternoon, which he's never done, um, wasn't really – he was pleasant but not enlightening. And then last week, Nick Casario, since 2010, has done every single um, pre-draft press conference – but this year Belichick did it. So is he changed? And he was he was terrific. You know, he spent nine minutes in a soliloquy at the beginning, and then he answered a lot of questions. Nothing about Brady, and he alluded to the fact that there would be guys who were not going to be at the offseason training. But um, is he doing things differently? Why is he do? Why is Bill doing these things? I don't know yet if I have an answer. But if Tom just wants a thaw, 
if everybody just wants to sit there and, you know, sip some Malbec or whatever people drink and, and talk about things in crass backyard around an open fire, then, then, then go do it. And then, you know, go play the season. But there's got to be some common ground. You know, that whole two bills thing that came out, you watched that, right? Yes. All right. Is that not the perfect precursor to what's going on here? You know, we're going to be 15 years down the road, and unfortunately, by that time, Belichick's going to be, you know, Belichick's older. You know, you don't want to wait 20 years when Belichick's 86 years old and then say, oh, well, we really screwed this up. I, I wish it didn't go that way. So He may still be coaching that. Robert Kraft told me last year he wants him to be like Warren Buffett and Rupert Murdoch and coach into his 80s. And I asked Pete Carroll, he said, why stop there? Wouldn't that be <laughs> something? Wouldn't that be something if 20 years from now they're both still coaching? That would be. Both I can't those, imagine those Bill doing anything NFL else. I, ever covered. I can't imagine Bill Belichick doing anything else. Hey, before I let you go, that, that leads me to a question that we had today on PFT Live. We did a draft of the guys we would want for one game to go against Bill Belichick. If you could pick one coach to face Bill Belichick for one game, one coach for that game, who would it be? Everybody already said Coughlin, right? Yeah, that was my first pick. Yeah, Coughlin or Mike Shanahan. Shanahan did not come up, and Shanahan could have come up and should have come up because Shanahan did well against Belichick. So yeah, Shanahan, Shanahan should have been in there. McDaniels would be an intriguing choice as well. Yes, right? he definitely would be. He had that win in uh, 2009. A bleak day for the Patriots, that was. A bleak day, Mike. Yeah, that was when the Broncos were in those ugly-ass old 1960s uniforms, right? The, like the brown and yellow? The Patriots, you know, they've been so friggin' good that you can remember the losses Regular season losses too spring to mind is oh yeah that was the day that X Y or Z happened yeah well because I mean, you're right it's rare they're embarrassed when are they embarrassed that they were embarrassed by the Ravens in the playoffs at the end of the 2009 season they were embarrassed when the they, they never get blown out playoffs yeah that's right the Jets that one the ne- the two year the next year in the divisional round and uh, and every year since then they've been to the AFC Championship game and they've steamrolled people for the most part in the regular season. It's funny, up here people that keep Chiefs saying, game. You know, why are you that writing Chiefs about game. this? We don't give a shit about this soap opera stuff. Why are you continuing to beat this drum? It's, you know, this big, he's always been like this. To me, Mike, this is the gold standard, certainly for NFL dynasties. And that includes the Packers and the 49ers, because this has gone longer. Um, and it might be professional sports dynasties in general. And we're watching, regardless of how it ends, happily they fix it or not, this is the end of days, and we don't want to be. I don't want to be caught saying, "Yeah, it's no big deal," when all this shit's going on. So that's why we have to keep reporting on it and trying to do our best to figure out and tell people. And it really is an amazing dynasty when you consider they won three and four years, then won ten years in between, right? But, and almost won three and four again. Yeah, yeah, and should have right. won three and four again, but for the decision to keep Malcolm Butler on ice. All right, I told you fifteen minutes. I've kept you twenty-seven. Tom, thank you. You've made the rest of the thing shorter for me. Well, uh, well great work. Great work. Enjoy your – give us a plug for whatever it is you're doing. Oh, we got uh, Boston Sports Tonight. That's going to be on tonight, 9 to 12. It's on every night, Monday through Friday here in the area. Uh, Quick Slants will be on with uh, Gerard Mayo and Phil Perry. That's on uh, on Tuesday nights at 6 o'clock. And we also have Quick Slants, the podcast, um, which you can find on NBCSportsBoston.com, or you can find it on all your podcasting apps. I saw a tweet about a very compelling episode of that where Mayo talks about the responsibilities of the linebackers in the Belichick defense. I've made a note to go back and listen to that. Mayo's really, really, really good. He's really good. He's given me great insight on, 
you know, how Belichick operates. And one of the things that he said, he's like, look, radical transparency. He doesn't give you guys anything, but he'll tell us any answer to any question we pose. That's why when Amendola said, I asked Belichick what happened with Malcolm, and he wouldn't tell me, I thought that was interesting because that's not supposed to be the way it's supposed to go, allegedly. Yeah. Well, great stuff, Tommy. Hashtag Tommy, talking about hashtag Tommy. See you, man. All right, thanks again to Tom Curran. Appreciated his time and his willingness to spend so much time with us. I told him 15 minutes. We ended up going nearly a half an hour. All right, some of your questions from today. I I can't get to all of them. There's 59 of them. I'll try to get to all of them one of the days this week where we don't have an interview. We've got some interviews coming up this week, though, so that may be a challenge. But here we go. At Recliner QB, making the pitch to keep... PFTPM, thank you. The problem is all of the Twitter handles listed by Recliner QB, Terry Gensler, B-Flow, Fauchol, Sergio D, Leapers 500, The Impact 99, Black 88 Elite. I think that's the full audience. I think that's it. I, that's the problem. I got to ask myself, do I want to keep doing this for 10 people? Couldn't we just do a conference call? Couldn't we just meet in the barn every day if this is what we're going to do? I could charge admission. Anyway, I appreciate I appreciate everybody who is and and this and I I always hate it when you get into this public should I do something should I not do something and I've resisted having this conversation I just don't I I don't know whether to keep doing it and for now I've decided to keep doing it because apparently five or six of you really like it so for now I'll try to keep doing it. At Terry Gensler, 14, have you reached out to Sheets about a sponsorship? There, Sheets Brothers Coffee and MTO Salads are the perfect fuel for every fan of the PFTPM podcast. I like that. And and Sheets responded. Sheets responded with their official Twitter account, 491,000 followers, family-owned and operated since 1952. There is a Sheets not far from my house. I will periodically get the made-to-order salad. I get grilled chicken, not heated up. With the the lettuce, the romaine collection of lettuce, not the standard iceberg. Red onions, chopped onions, which means my wife avoids me for the rest of the day. Uh, tomatoes, uh, croutons, and shredded cheese. No dressing, doesn't need dressing. I put a little olive oil on it when I get home. A little uh, salt, a little pepper, a little rosemary, and we're good to go. So, yes, Sheets, we'll, we'll do business. We need, a, we need a sponsor for the PFTPM podcast. And uh, Sheets Brothers Coffee, excellent as well. So, come on, Sheets. At least send me some gift cards. Let's do that. I can get some free salads and coffee, and that'll keep the PFTPM podcast going. At ABO1408, who am I going to exploit next? Thank you very much. If that's a joke, I appreciate it. If it's not, go to hell. All right, next, at Recliner QB. Um, have you seen the list of potential sponsors that we have tweeted since Friday? There are a lot of us that really want PFTPM to continue. I have not. I have not, but I appreciate that. Keep it up. At the Impact 99, could Seattle be a good landing spot for Dez? Seems he will need to play with a quarterback that will give him a chance to get open on a 50-50 ball, and Wilson could definitely do so. But could he? What happened with Jimmy Graham? It didn't work well for Jimmy Graham with Russell Wilson. I don't know that Russell Wilson's a guy that's going to trust Dez Bryant to be open when he's not open. The Jimmy Graham experiment did not work. I think that Russell Wilson will choose to make something happen with his legs unless he sees a guy wide open. And if he doesn't see a guy wide open, I think he's less inclined to throw. All right. Uh, At Sergio D, another question about the sponsorship thing. 
If you want to get paid for PFTPM, and you should, why don't you embark on some sponsorship deals for the show? You can ask your good friend in Nashville for some tips on how to achieve this. I don't know who my good friend in Nashville is. I need Sergio D to explain himself. I don't know who that is. I don't have I don't have many friends anyway. I don't know who my good friend in Nashville is. At Terry Gensler 14, do you still believe Mrs. Florio's birthday will be overshadowed by the schedule release? I.e., when are they releasing the schedule? Her birthday is not coming up anytime soon. My mom's birthday. That was my mom's birthday, April 18. Yes, that's the Mrs. Flurry you're referring to. My mom would have been 82. 82? 82. This, what's the 18th? What's today? It's Wednesday. I don't think it's going to be, I don't know. Is it going to be the 18th? Peter King thinks it's going to be Thursday the 19th. I don't think it's going to be tomorrow because tomorrow's tax day. So, uh, yes. Uh, I think it's coming this week, Wednesday or Thursday. Another one from Recliner QB. One last question. Please do a full week of PFTPM to help alleviate all the stress from having to do our taxes. I will try to do a full week of PFTPM. I've tried. At Andrew Yeh, my quick Google search found that the success rate of converting an onside kick and 4th and 15 are about the same, 20%. But 4th and 15 feels easier, doesn't it? Do you think it should be longer than 15 yards? I love the idea, though, converting onside kicks seems to be mostly luck to me. This gets back to a conversation we had on PFT Live about the fact that the kickoff's done. It's dead. It's just a matter of time. Steve Tasker's comments from over the weekend, I think, make it clear to me that the kickoff is done. Two and a half years, if not sooner, and I think we may have to revise it and make it sooner. So what do you put in its place? The only thing that makes sense is 4th and 15. And not only when you want to do an onside kick, but all the time because then you can do a fake snap it to the up back whatever let the punter throw a pass whatever you can do a fake and that simulates the surprise onside kick you can go for it with your quarterback on the field that simulates the planned onside kick and based upon the research done by our good friend Andrew Yeh the percentage rate about the same it does feel like it's harder to recover an onside kick because it feels like luck skill is involved in converting fourth and 15. A certain amount of skill. So if the kickoff's going to be dead, there has to be an alternative that allows a team that is trailing to get back into the game. And this fourth and 15 idea is the only thing that works. And we're eventually going to embrace it because the kickoff's meaningless. Especially if the NFL's next move is to adopt this new college rule where you can call for a fair catch inside the 25 and get the ball at the 25. Eliminating the forced return from the deliberately short kick that that hasn't been used as much as I thought it would be, but still is the alternative to kicking the ball into the end zone and just giving the other team the ball on the 25. At Brian, Brian Lamb or Brian I Am, is Marcus Mariota good enough for Dez? I don't know that Mariota is the answer for Dez Bryant. You need a quarterback who can throw the ball and is willing to throw the ball into tight spots and to trust that Des Bryant is open even if it doesn't appear to be open. I think the Lions and Matthew Stafford make sense. I just don't know that the that the Lions' new coaching staff is going to be tolerant of a guy who is emotional to the point where it can be a problem. At Andrew Yeh, does Colin Kaepernick's collusion case require him to show collusion by the entire league or is it enough to show it among two teams? Here's where I think they're going to try to prove it. They're going to try to prove that the league office was the conduit for league-wide collusion. And I think if a certain number of teams are involved, you can terminate the collective bargaining agreement early. But I think if it's at least two or more teams, it's collusion. Because this is 32 separate businesses that aren't supposed to be making their employment decisions collectively. Collusion is prohibited. And regardless of the reason for it, 
collusion is prohibited. It's simply coordination. So I don't think it's going to take evidence of multiple teams, but I think what they're going to show, well, more than two teams, but I think what they're going to show is the league office was behind creating the sense that it's smart to stay away from Colin Kaepernick. So the collusion was organized and orchestrated by the league office. I think that's what they're going to try to prove. At Jason Schender, how do you familiarize yourself with draft prospects? Do you watch film or do you rely solely on the opinions of people you trust? I rely on the opinions of people I trust, in part because I think it's a waste of time to try to master these prospects prior to the draft. You know, this is one of the bizarre disconnects that I ran about pretty much every year. Although as time goes by, I get less worked up about it. We've got this entire industry that's sprung up where people are obsessed with the draft and there are countless draft experts now and they watch film and they make ratings and they factor in the opinions of people that they trust and they gather all this information and it's an obsession for four months. And then the draft happens and we forget about all of it. We forget about all of it. And the other side of it, too, is there's not, in my view, an acute awareness among the people who are part of the churning of the draft process and the evaluation of the prospects. There's not a self-awareness of the reality that half these guys are going to stink. Right now, I don't think there's a blanket vouching by all the draft experts that these guys are all going to be great or they all have the potential to be great, and it's what the teams do with this lump of clay that determines whether or not they'll be great. But the reality is half these guys are going to be busts. We don't know which half are going to be busts. And if if the draft experts wear that on their sleeve too aggressively, what happens? The fans start to say, well, why are we paying attention to any of this? See, th- this is part, and, and I don't know that I'm peeling back the curtain here. This is my assessment of the whole draft hype machine. This is a way that fans are enticed to get excited about the offseason, to get excited about the coming season, to get excited about their team's prospects. This is about selling hope. Now, I don't know that the people, and, and I don't believe that the Mel Kuypers, Mike Mayocks, Todd McShays, Daniel Jeremiah's of the world, I don't believe that those folks are deliberately engaged in the effort to sell snake oil. They're into this. Right? This is what they do, ferreting through these prospects, watching their film, ranking them, rating them. But it's not convenient to what they do to stand up and say, oh, you know what? Half these guys we're talking about are completely going to suck, and we have no idea which half they are because we're rating them based upon what they do against inferior talent. And you know what? They're going to go to the next level, and they're going to get hit in the mouth, and they're either going to react well or they're not. And I got no idea how to even begin to tell you which half is going to react well and which half isn't. And if you're too overt with that, people are going to say, well, what the hell are we doing? Why, why are we listening? Why are we listening if there's an acknowledgement that half these guys are going to suck and nobody has any way to even begin to tell us which half is going to suck? That's why I like what Ryan Leaf is doing. You know, I went 180 on Saturday. I started writing an article about Ryan Leaf's take on Baker Mayfield with the intent of saying, why the hell are we listening to Ryan Leaf? And by the time I wrote it and revised it and thought about it, it dawned on me. We need more Ryan Leafs. We need more people who are in a position where they can help us understand what it is that makes a bust and make us aware that there will be players who do indeed become busts. It does happen. 
And it seems a little trite for Ryan Leaf to say, I close my eyes and I listen to these prospects, and if any of them sound like me in 1998, that's a red flag. But you know what? I mean, we, we know guys who, who have that attitude. They have that arrogance. They have that edge. We, know how, we, we, we kind of know it when we see it. We know it when we feel it. And, and if there's a guy who lived it, and, he, and he's, you know, boy, this guy sounds just like I did, and look at what happened with me. I, I'm fascinated by that. Because it's all part of the process of acknowledging to the fans that, you know what, half these guys are going to suck. And at least somebody's trying to figure out who's going to suck. It, when, when, when we see mistakes, and I saw that Mike Mayock had a, an item with Richard Deitch of The Athletic, where he talked about his assessment of Blaine Gabbard, his assessment of Johnny Manziel, and he was wrong because he loved both of them. He loved Jar- Jamarcus Russell. You know, usually a draft expert is wrong because... He says a guy was going to be great, and he's not. How many times is a guy wrong because a guy said that a player was going to suck, and he didn't? It never happens because they never say a guy's going to suck. When do they ever say, hey, this guy's going to be a bust? Oh, this guy's going to be a bust. I, You know what? Half these guys are going to be bust. Put me down for Baker Mayfield being a bust because of X, Y, Z. Now, every once in a while, I'll hear things suggesting that a guy's going to be a bust. I remember when Geno Smith was coming out of West Virginia. Somebody that I trust said, this guy's not going to be any good in the NFL. And he ended up falling a lot farther than many expected, maybe because a lot of people realized he wasn't going to be all that good. The example that was given to me, 25 touchdowns, no interceptions through five games in his final year at West Virginia. Against Maryland, he would have thrown three or four interceptions if they had a competent safety. See, that's the hard thing to pick up on film. How will a guy's great play against inferior competition translate to the next level and how will his flaws be exploited at the next level anyway that's a good question from jason shender and uh i i don't and here's the thing when when what i do is assimilate reports analyze reports harvest hard news i don't have the time or the inclination to just watch film watch film watch film because the time that it takes to watch film watch film watch film and i'm confident that if i put the time and the effort into it and i worked with somebody that i trusted i would figure out how to, you know, analyze what these guys do. But what's the point? Half these guys are going to suck. And not even the best of the best draft experts can even begin to tell us with any regularity or reliability which guys are going to suck. All right. Uh, Here we go. More, More of our friends who are trying to help us get sponsors for the PFTPM podcast. I appreciate that. At B. Flofo Show says, the closer we get to the draft, the more I'm thinking we only get one franchise-worthy quarterback. Which quarterback do you think will be starting in the NFL in five years? I, I don't know. I don't know. 1999, five quarterbacks taken in round one. Donovan McNabb, the only one that turned out to be great. Dante Culpepper may have had a similar career, but for injuries, he had a great 2004 season. McNabb was clearly the best. Culpepper was, was, was good to above average. And then Cade McNown. Achilles Smith, and Tim Couch. Bust, bust, bust. So I don't know. Is one and a half, is that a fair over-under for the franchise quarterbacks in this draft class? I'd say of the five, Josh Rosen, because I think the knocks on Josh Rosen are completely unrelated to his ability. You got people who are freaked out because he doesn't say all the right things and do all the right things. Well, all right, he may not love football. All right, well, if he does... He's got the potential to be the best. So if I had to pick one of the five, I'd say him. And watch, I'll be flat out wrong. 
Uh, what else do we have here? At Terry Gensler 14, someone is suing my former employer for unpaid overtime wages to salaried employees. Should I join in the lawsuit or let bygones be bygones? Look, Terry Gensler, I'm not going to give you any legal advice. I don't want to get any type of a Sean Hannity situation here. So no legal advice. Also, I'm no longer licensed to practice, so I'm not giving you any legal advice. Find a lawyer and ask that lawyer any questions you may have about getting involved in the process. At BFLOFO, show if Gronk's delay to enter the offseason program is about the money. Do you think Belichick is more likely to trade Gronk or pay him? Depends on what he could get for him in trade. You know, if you listen to the Tom Curran interview, and if you're still listening to the podcast now, I'm assuming you did, there's some concerns in New England. I feel bad for poo-pooing the Seth Wickersham article from January as much as I did. There's some concerns. And will Bill Belichick change? Will it matter? Does Tom Brady still want to be there? Does Gronk still want to be there? Will they pay Gronk? There's a lot of issues there. I probably should wrap this up. We've been going for an hour. I'm going to scroll through these and uh, and pick out a few more to answer. At Leapers 500, who's the best or most interesting person to smoke a cigar with in NFL circles? I, I You know what? I've I, I don't know. I, I do most of my cigar smoking at home in the barn with family members and friends. So I, I haven't hung out with an NFL figure and smoked a cigar yet. Has Stats ever smoked with you? That's the next question. No, Stats has never smoked anything in his entire life, according to Stats. I'm going to try to get him really drunk when he comes here this summer and get him to smoke. I've got like a tiny little, these tiny little Monte Cristos that smoke in like, I don't know, Three minutes. I'm going to try to smoke one of those. If I can get him drunk enough, I think I can. I think I can corrupt him into smoking a cigar. A little tiny, little. There's a name for it on Eastbound and Down that I can't bring myself to repeat. But uh, uh, it's when it's when Kenny goes and visits his mom. That's all I'll say about that. At Doctor J144 is James Harrison, a Hall of Famer. I don't know. Defensive Player of the Year, Super Bowl ring, longevity. I got to look and see where his, his sacks stack up against others. He doesn't scream Hall of Famer, but uh, neither did Kevin Green. So, you know what? Let's do this right now. I know this is going to make for fascinating conversation. I'll try to talk to you while I pull up the all-time sack leaders. Here we go. Where are we here? All right. Um, of course, it's not coming up easily. Profootballreference.com. Has, has all of this stuff readily available, and I'm trying to get it to, of course it's not, here we go, that's not doing it, let, let me just see how many sacks James Harrison has, James Harrison has, James Harrison has, career sacks, career sacks, he only has 84 and a half career sacks, that's not nearly enough to make it to the Hall of Fame. How can he only have 84 and a half career sacks? He had 16 in 2008. He only has 84 and a half career sacks. That's not Hall of Fame numbers. I don't think that's Hall of Fame numbers. I think you need at least triple digits. Kevin Green had, come on, internet. Kevin Green had 100 and, 160? Yeah. James Harrison's not a Hall of Famer. And, and I hate to pin it all on sacks, but... That's your primary value as a pass rusher. And if you only have 84 and a half career sacks, I don't think that gets it done. All right, let's see what else we got here. Probably should wrap this thing up. Um, at Joe... 
Geiger Jr., have you given much thought to using YouTube or some other video service as a live component for PFTPM? Nah. Nah. Because then I got to worry about what I have on. I got to worry about the camera. I got to worry about is my toupee on right? Nah. Nah. Good idea, but nah. And and if it's not generating any revenue, turn it into a video component isn't going to do anything uh, anything for that either. Uh, looking, for a, looking for a good one to end with. Here's one. Corey Michael. Why do you all hate Johnny Manziel? Look, and, and wh- why is it that whenever you express a negative opinion about someone, people assume that you hate them? What's wrong with having an objective assessment of a human being based upon the things they do and based upon the things they say? My beef with Johnny Manziel came up two weeks ago because in his 20-minute interview with Dan Patrick, which 99% of it was fine, there was that moment where he tried to blame the Browns for not doing their homework and realizing he's a guy who wasn't going to work hard. And it bothered me because the entire pre-draft process for Manziel back in 2014 was about making people think he was all about football. He was going to study. He was going to work hard. And so what he said may be accurate because the Browns should have known that it was all bullshit. But how can he, of all people, say the Browns blew this when he was actively lying to them and lying to anyone else about what his commitment to football was going to be? That's what bothers me. He tries to say everything that happened to him is his fault, but he still applies conditions. You can't have it both ways. You can't say the Browns screwed this up and the Browns put me in a toxic quarterback room and the Browns did this and the Browns did that, and it's all my fault. No, if it's all your fault, it's no one else's fault. And it doesn't matter whether the Browns or the Patriots or anyone in between drafted you. It's your fault that you failed. And will he get back in the NFL? It's going to be a long road. And I'm rooting for the guy. But he's got to fully own that it was on him. And he can't be blaming the Browns or anyone else for what happened. And he shouldn't be getting mad when people like me call him out. He should be saying, you know what? You're right. You're right. I shouldn't have said that. It is all my fault. And thank you for that constructive criticism as I continue to try to get myself back to the NFL. He should be embracing any negativity that can reasonably help him stay on the path, the path of sobriety, the path of commitment, and ultimately a path that may have to wind to Canada. He may have to go to the Alliance of American Football. It's going to take effort. It's going to take work. He was better in his second game in the spring league than he was in his first game. I'm rooting for him because I think a good story like that can inspire others who are battling with addiction to get clean and turn their lives around. He can do a lot of good if he can get back to the NFL. I hope he does. But along the way, if he says things that I think merit criticism, I'm going to criticize him. And if that makes people think that I hate the guy, there's nothing I can do about it. All right, a full hour today. Thank you. We'll we'll, we'll do this again tomorrow. I, I, I really have not been fishing for compliments. If anything... You've made it harder for me to stop doing this. Even if it's only six people who like this. I, I heard the, the Don Imus sign off last month when he concluded 50 years of radio. And he said that in all his years, he always thought he was talking to one person. And I feel like I'm talking to one person. And for me, times I feel like I'm just talking to myself. And there's a, a certain therapeutic element to articulating your words and practicing the concept of speaking extemporaneously. It's not an easy thing to do. The more you do it, the easier it gets. But it does give me a way to just go. And if six of you are listening, that's six more than I thought were listening. So I guess we'll keep doing it. Hopefully it'll be a lot more than six one of these days. And, uh, you know, I'll be able to put a little more money in the mattress to justify the time we spent. And and I'm not, look, this isn't, oh, poor Florio's hurting for money. The knock on Formica, 
I've been blessed to get paid fairly well to talk about football all the time. I mean, for crying out loud, this isn't a real job. But I do like to spend my time on things that generate money. I think that's fair to, you know, talk for an hour and get something for it, even if it's not much. Even if it's just sheets cards for free coffee and made-to-order salads. Now I have to go get one. All right, we'll do this again tomorrow. Thanks for your time. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk.